when I was working with adolescents, I would show them a picture of the brain and the different areas of the brain and what they controlled. Like, you know, this one, uh, this one controls your memory. This one controls your speech. This one controls your coordination. And then I would show them another picture uh, that, that showed where marijuana attached itself to in the brain so that they immediately could see the connection between, okay, now I understand why maybe my short-term memory is not as good as it should have been or why my coordination sometimes can be off. They could actually see, you know, where marijuana was attaching itself to in the brain. And, and I think that type of a discussion in education may have an impact uh, much more so than a lecture on, well, you know, it's illegal. You shouldn't be doing it. And if you do, this is what's going to happen. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with mental health and addictions counselor and author Richard Capriola. Richard shares the knowledge and insights he gained from over two decades of clinical work helping adults and adolescents in his book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Richard offers grounded, honest, and effective solutions for the individuals and families that are striving to overcome the suffering that addiction can bring. This is an extremely important topic, and I really enjoyed my conversation with Richard. So let's get over to it. As always, thank you to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show podcast, Richard Capriola. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, doing really great. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, so you are the, the author of a book called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Um, and it, obviously from the title, the book is targeted at, at helping families that, that maybe have children that are, are dealing with substance abuse. Um, so I'll just start. What what kind of led you to write this book? How did how did how did you come into this? Well, I've I've spent over two decades working in mental health and uh, and substance abuse counseling. I started out uh, working for a mental health crisis center in central Illinois, uh, and I noticed that a lot of people coming to the crisis center had not only a mental health issue, but also a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and uh, obtained uh, a master's degree in addictions counseling, and then was offered a job at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Menninger Clinic is a large psychiatric hospital, um, and I was hired as an addictions counselor for both adolescents and adults. And I worked for over a decade at Menninger. And during that time, I met uh, an awful lot of parents who had brought their child to Menninger to be assessed and treated for uh, substance abuse uh, disorders, as well as mental health disorders. And I would sit across from them and and go through their uh, child's history of using a substance, which drugs they'd been using, when they started and how often they used. And and they would look at me sometimes and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, well, I thought something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. So after I left Mendinger, I wanted to set about to write a very concise uh, resource document for uh, parents. Uh, both parents who might be struggling with this issue uh, or parents that just want to be better prepared 
in the, about this issue. So in my book, I address uh, an overview of what drugs uh, teens are, are using, what, what street drugs are out there. I try to explain how drugs work within the teenage brain so parents have a, an idea of how vulnerable their child's brain is as it's growing and developing. Um, I put in a section on uh, on assessments so that a parent would know what type of tests and assessment they should get done if they suspect their child is using a substance. I put in a section on what's called process disorders, which are things like uh, eating disorders and self-injury and gaming, because many times they accompany alcohol and drug use. And then I put in uh, a number of sections that deal with resources and treatment options that are available. And I packed all of this into about 110 pages. So I I wanted it to be concise. I wanted it to be non-technical. And I wanted it to be something that a parent could read and walk away from and say, okay, I've got this. I understand this a little bit better now. And, and it's really for parents and family members and anyone who wants to know more about adolescent substance abuse um, so that they feel better prepared, regardless of whether their child is currently using a substance or not. One of the big aspects of this book is the warning signs. So throughout the book, I have warning signs on alcohol use, marijuana use, uh, a child developing uh, an eating disorder or who might be self-harming themselves. So I think it's important that parent be aware of what those warning signs are and, and what to look out for. Uh, so hopefully it'll be a resource that uh, will help help people feel better prepared to to understand this issue and if needed uh, to be able to deal with it without necessarily feeling in a panic mode. Yeah, no, that sounds tremendous. Um, and I, I definitely appreciate the fact that it's, um, you know, 110 pages uh, and, and that you, you wrote it in a non-technical way. I feel like, and, and I don't know that I initially set out to do this, but I feel like a lot of what I do in on this show, which not not that my my podcast is nearly as helpful as the book you've written, but um, is constantly trying to render ideas that are unfamiliar to me down into something that's more digestible to the layman, which is what I am in almost all topics. <laughs> so um, there's a lot of there's a lot of usefulness in that, though, and I think that um, especially when people have a lot of technical knowledge, it seems like oh well, this is what people need like if they had the same technical understanding i do that would be useful but for someone who doesn't have that background it can be intimidating and just seem like it, it, it's not useful in the same way it can be and it can be uh intimidating and it can be overwhelming and uh and it can be a complex uh subject but i wanted to make it user friendly i wanted it to be family friendly um so that a parent could keep it as a resource uh they may not need it right now uh but they would have it uh, as a resource for either themselves or maybe somebody else they knew who might be going through this issue and I wanted it to be something that they could read these chapters very quickly and, and, and basically walk away with a lot of uh, basic information on adolescent substance abuse. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's awesome. Um, so a few questions just out of what you've described so far. Um, one would be, you know, you, you talked about how you, you see folks that have maybe a mental health issue and then that's oftentimes accompanied by a substance abuse issue. Yeah. And and maybe there's not a, a good answer to this, but is it kind of a chicken and the egg scenario? Like, does substance abuse often lead to mental health 
challenges or do mental health challenges lead to substance abuse or is it not there's not a clear pattern well it could go either way but in my experience uh, working at Menninger mm. clinic it seemed that um, many of the adolescents who were using a substance were using it to medicate an underlying uh, psychological issue or a mental health issue for example i met an awful lot of young men and women who were smoking a lot of marijuana and when i asked them to help me understand why they were smoking so much marijuana the number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. So for other kids, it might be depression, it might be uh, being bullied at school, it might be a trauma that they've experienced. Uh, it, it could be any number of psychological reasons. And, and that's why it's so important for a parent who believes their child is using a substance to get the comprehensive assessments that I outline in my book, uh, because that will either rule in or rule out if there is an underlying issue like anxiety, because if, if there is, regardless of whether it's a, a depression or anxiety, um, a, a child needs treatment on both. You can't just treat the alcohol or the drug use and ignore the anxiety. You need to have both treated. And the same is true if you find a child who's using a substance and maybe they're self-injuring themselves or maybe they're developing an eating disorder. You need to treat both of those disorders. Um, so a child, for example, that's smoking marijuana to manage their anxiety, you need to treat the marijuana use, but you also need to treat the underlying anxiety issue. So the, the, the bottom line is you, a parent needs to get these comprehensive assessments done that is in my book so that they have an accurate picture of everything going on with their child and then can get some recommendations on how to treat those issues. Right. So something else that, that you'd spoken to is, is kind of the vulnerability of the teenage mind. Um, and that's something that certainly when I was a teenager, I had no concept of, right? Like, I, I, I think I probably thought that, like, once you went through puberty, like, <laughs> you're done, right? You're done with it. And, and right, yeah, I'm an idiot. Um, and and the, the maturation process, though, from what I understand now, the brain doesn't really stop developing until... I've heard like 25 years of age. Is that? That's accurate. Is that yes, accurate? Our, our brains are in the process of developing and, and, and don't become completely developed or mature until we're 24, 25. So a teenage brain and the younger you are, the less development that, that there is in your, in your brain really puts adolescents at a disadvantage when it comes to higher order thinking, uh, the be, being able to make, uh, you know, pro decisions on, on whether to do something, how risky it is is weigh the pros and cons and make a good decision. And I think that's something that parents need to understand too, from the standpoint of protecting the brain and how vital it is to protect the developing brain. Um, and then I do have a section in my book that talks about how these drugs work within the teenage brain so that parents understand that, you know, when their child is using a substance, it can affect various, uh, various parts of the brain. For example, again, these kids that I worked with who were using marijuana, they were very bright kids. Some of their IQs were in the superior range. Um, but when the test came back, the psychological test came back and the neuropsychological test came back, what it showed was that in many cases, the processing speed of their brain was below average. Their short-term memory was impaired um, and, and their motivation.
motivation was impaired. So, you know, these substances do have an impact uh, that's often unnoticeable within the brain. Mm. So I guess, and, and I, again, this might be a silly question, but I mean, would it be, and obviously we're talking about abuse of substances to some extent, but I would, I would guess that, I mean, it, it's, it's not really healthy for a, a teenager to use these drugs really at any, at any frequency. I mean, obviously abusing them is not good, but even, you know, <laughs> monthly use or something is also detrimental because the mind is just not ready for it. Yeah, the brain's not ready. You're right. The, 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 the yeah. brain is in the process of, of developing. Now, obviously, the more you use a substance, the more likely you are to do more damage. Uh, the problem with occasional use is uh, a child may not be able to limit it to occasional use. They may start out that way and they may think, well, you know, it's, it's never going to get any worse. Uh, but before, before they know it, it's sort of crept up on them and they're using maybe weekly and then maybe a few times a week and then pretty soon it becomes daily. So uh, they really may not have the, the capacity or the will to control it the way they think they can. Right. Well, and, and, and I guess kind of where I was going to, or what I was thinking is, you know, obviously a, a teenage kid, it, it seems pretty obvious that that isn't a healthy thing, but when someone's 21, right. And now they can legally go buy alcohol or whatever, really, it sounds like still, I mean, they're not a teenager, but they're still not 25. So even then there's, there's maybe more risk than we as a society really give credit to is that is that true yeah i think that as long as our brain is still in the process of developing any type of mm. assault on the brain whether it's alcohol or drugs um, it runs the risk of of doing some damage uh, perhaps less damage than if they started when they were 14 or 15 or 16 uh, but there's always that 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 risk um, sort of like saying well uh, a person doesn't start smoking cigarettes until they're 25 or 26 does that mean there's going to be less risk. No, it doesn't mean there's going to be less risk. There is always risk involved in putting an outside substance into our body, which then goes to our brain. Gotcha. So, you know, in the clinic that you were working in uh, for over a decade there, you, you mentioned that you work with both children and adults. Do you find that, and again, I'm sure it's not 100% of the time or anything, but do you find that a, a, at least a, a lot or a majority of adults who who struggle with substance abuse problems trace it back to a, a beginning of that in, in their teenage or adolescent years? Or is there not a correlation? There is a strong correlation. The research uh, is fairly clear on this issue. Almost all addiction, uh, almost all dependency begins in adolescence. Uh, very few mm -hmm. people become uh, addicted to a substance after 23, 24, 25, maybe with the exception of opiates where, you know, they're prescribed it for pain and then they begin to abuse it and become addicted to it. But almost all addiction begins in the adolescent years. The adolescent years are clearly a vulnerability to being captured by substance abuse. Right. Well, it's interesting that, and it probably just correlates directly, but you say, you know, 25-ish is where the brain stops maturing and people typically don't develop dependencies after 25. <laughs> so there's there again, you see that, <laughs> that distinction. Yeah. I, I think, I think people grow out of it as they go through the teen years and maybe in the uh, early adulthood, because, you know, they've moved on. Many of them have formed careers. Many of them got married and started families. Um, definitely these early teenage years are, are, are risky and, and a vulnerability for kids. 
So in your book, you know, I, I, I haven't had the opportunity to read it, but I did I did look at the, the chapters and kind of the way it's broken broken down. And there's a variety of chapters, several of which are focused exclusively on on one substance. Is is there a, a pretty great variety in um, the impact that that these different substances have, and or a variety in the way that they have to be treated? Uh, there's not necessarily a way and a variety in which they need to be treated. Um, you know, the the concepts, the treatment approaches uh, vary from child to child depending upon what the diagnosis is. The more severe the diagnosis, the more severe the use uh, calls for perhaps a more intensive treatment than a child that might, uh, say, have a diagnosis of a mild disorder compared to a, a, a moderate or severe disorder. Um, so in terms of treatment, I think treatment gets down to the comprehensive assessment that I talked about earlier. Earlier. You know, what's the extent of the substance use? Is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it severe? What are the underlying issues that might be contributing to the use? And how severe are those? Um, some kids, uh, um, you know, the underlying issues are so severe uh, that you may be looking at a child going into treatment for six to 12 months in a residential facility. In other areas, or for other kids who might not have a severe underlying issue, you may do very well with an outpatient treatment program where the child is seeing somebody maybe once or twice a week. So treatment is individualized. It really is based upon the comprehensive assessments and the treatment plan that's developed. There is no one treatment fits everybody. Um, the treatment really needs to be individualized to the needs of the particular student or the, or the child or even the adult uh, to get the best effects. Right. So and again, I, you know, I don't, I'm sure there's not a hard percentage or something, but, but perhaps, but I mean, hopefully this is a hopeful answer <laughs> that you can give, but I mean, do you see that, that a lot of people are able to, to, to work themselves back out of this or is it a struggle for a lifetime? I, I guess where I'm kind of thinking is, is it really critical if possible to prevent this from ever beginning? Because once you're in it, it's really hard to get back out or is there a pretty good success rate of people again, being able to kind of recover from this? Well, I think uh, the, the longer you can uh, keep a person away from a substance, the better off. And that's why it's so important for p parents to know what the warning signs are, uh, to understand this is the issues that I have in my book. Uh, but one of the messages in my book also is that our brains have a tremendous capacity to heal themselves. Um, and, and, and with treatment, uh, you know, uh, there is hope that people can recover and put the addiction or the substance abuse behind them and move on with their lives. Um, it does happen, and it happens more frequently than than I think that we recognize or know. Uh, but 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 it does require treatment. It does require intervention, and it does require treatment in many cases.
you know, when I was a kid, um, I was, I grew up, went to school and mostly throughout the nineties. Um, so dare was a really popular program. I don't know if that's still in schools or not. Um, but I will say, I mean, you know, so for me, when I went through the dare program, I was probably 10 years old, I think like fifth grade age. Um, and it really was effective for me to a point. So all through junior high and in the early part of my high school career, I was frankly terrified <laughs> to try any substance because I thought I immediately, my life, my life is destroyed. Um, but I was kind of surprised that there wasn't a follow-up to it at, at a age closer to, to high school. So I guess my, my question though is just, what is your thought on programs like dare and have they evolved over time that I'm not aware of? I think for, for, for some youngsters, those programs can have an impact, um, whether it'll be sustained over their entire school years. Um, who knows that, that, that may or may not be, but what I do think from, from my experience is that the approach of just say no or scaring kids, uh, doesn't work. Uh, telling them it do, telling them it's illegal doesn't work. Telling them that if they continue to use, their grades will drop, or they may not graduate, or they won't get into college, or they won't find a job. All of that doesn't mean anything to them because they don't believe it. Um, so what does work? Well, what I found worked, at least with the adolescents I was working with, was the neuroscience approach to it. They were very interested in, 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 in their brain. They were interested in knowing how their brain works. What, what do each area of the brain contribute to? And then how do these substances work within the brain? That seemed to capture their attention. And, and I used that when I was working with them to help them be able to see substance abuse from a different perspective, not from a legal perspective, but from a neuroscience perspective. That seemed to capture their attention, that they were interested in. And if we could take that approach, the neuroscience education approach, and put it into our schools at a very early age, and then reinforce it, like you were saying, every year, all the way through high school, we may actually make a difference in terms of what we're seeing out there today. You know, that, that, I mean, what you just described resonates with me a ton because frankly, that was my experience with it, with it was, I was, I was gullible enough or whatever to be terrified of the information that I had heard. So their scare tactic worked. However, once I hit a certain age, I started being around people who had tried these substances and their lives weren't destroyed immediately, right? <laughs> so right. then it turns into a thing where it's like, well, now I feel like I've been tricked. And really, I hadn't. I mean, they, the, 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 the people who were trying to prevent the drug abuse were, were correct in their intentions. But because it wasn't just an honest conversation, it then led to kind of a, a backlash against it. Whereas what you're talking yeah. about is just an honest conversation. And I think that um, I, I get that, you know, in not all circumstances is it appropriate to treat a child as a peer. Um, but I think when it's stuff that's this serious, it, it, it is helpful to actually just level with, with, with a kid as just another human. Um, because otherwise it just, it just seems like people are trying to control you as a kid. Cause that's obviously <laughs> a big part of being a kid is other people making choices for you, you know? 
Yeah, and, and adolescents don't like to be controlled. Right. No, nobody likes to be controlled. <laughs> we adults don't like to be controlled. Right. But how you approach this issue with them can make a, a, a very big difference. It's it's like what you were saying. If you can come to them f- from an education perspective uh, and, and help them to be able to uh, understand what drugs do in the brain and 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 have a different view on it, because if we scare them like like what happened with you and then exactly as you pointed out uh, eventually when they get in high school they see their peers are using a substance and they begin to think well wait a minute it doesn't seem so bad it's not i haven't seen anybody any of my friends harmed from this so you know maybe all that stuff they were telling me years ago just isn't quite true they were using it for other reasons um and then that leads them maybe to experiment with the substance right so you know something um that's declined over the years is cigarette use however yeah. it's it's kind of been replaced with vaping <laughs> um so i'm curious you know yeah. my understanding for the longest time with smoking was the primary harm from it that's coming is from the smoke right the actual the tar that's generated from the burning of the stuff whereas with vaping you're not getting that smoke so that same tar isn't there but you're still consuming a lot of nicotine. Can you elaborate at all on kind of what the effects of nicotine are? Because I don't think that's something that's talked about a lot. It's more framed as tobacco, but in vaping, it's not tobacco anymore. Well, you have just hit upon one of the major issues confronting the adult or the adolescent population today. And that is a tremendous surge in vaping among adolescents. Uh, In the last three years, we have seen a tremendous increase in the number of, of adolescents who have turned to vaping nicotine and marijuana. For example, three years ago, the number, the percentage of seniors that were vaping nicotine was 18%. Today, it's 34%. Three years ago, the percentage of of seniors that were uh, vaping uh, marijuana was 9%. Today, it's 22%. And that's just the increase in three years. And if you ask them, well, and and you were also right in terms of noting that cigarette smoking is at an all-time low. Well, that's because kids have switched to vaping nicotine. Um, and if you ask them, they'll say, well, it's safer than smoking cigarettes. And, and they're right. That is because when you smoke cigarettes, you get nicotine and a whole bunch of other uh, drugs along with it. Uh, when you when you vape nicotine, you're getting pure nicotine. But the problem with that is you're getting higher concentrations of nicotine than what you would get from a cigarette. So you're not getting all of the other substances from tobacco, but you're getting higher concentrations of nicotine, which will make you dependent or, or, or addicted to it much quicker. Plus the basic fact that inhaling a substance, whether it's tobacco or nicotine into your lungs, is runs a lot of health risk down the road as well. But but we are seeing kids turning more and more to vaping. There are instruments out there that is very difficult for parents to detect as being a vaping instrument. Some of them look like pins. Some of them look like USB drives. So they're very easy to obtain and they're very easy to conceal. To conceal. Yeah, well, and, um, you know, I used to be a, a cigarette smoker and then switched to vaping. And then fortunately, I was I was able to, to quit altogether. So I don't do any of it anymore. But, um, but yeah, to your point, the concealing of the vaping, not only does the, is the pen easier to conceal, but 
the smell is not doesn't linger nearly as much you know yeah. like you can do it in a room and within minutes there's not really any noticeable smell to detect as, you know, as opposed to a cigarette which stinks for <laughs> hours that's right that's yeah. right yeah yeah and i think that uh, is one of the ways that 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 kids get by with it the parents just don't pick up on it you know they can walk into their kids room if the kid was smoking cigarettes the parents pick up on it right away uh vaping nicotine uh is a little bit more uh, a little bit more difficult to detect right so you know some of the drugs and certainly correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is that some drugs like like say marijuana or um, uh, some segment of, of psychedelic drugs like mushrooms and that sort of thing um, don't pre present a physiological risk in so much. Of, I guess what I'm really trying to say is you can't overdose on them, right? Like you can't, you can't consume too much and then, and then die from it. So I think some people, I mean, I guess a, I'll start. Is that accurate? <laughs> Well, let's use marijuana, for sure. example. You cannot get a lethal overdose of mar marijuana. It is physically impossible to get an overdose, a lethal overdose of, of marijuana. Uh, people who get hurt uh, from smoking marijuana usually is because they did something stupid under the influence of it. They drove a car, they went skateboarding, they swam, you know, a number of those issues. So a drug like marijuana, uh, you're not going to get a lethal overdose. Uh, a drug, drug like an opiate or cocaine or methamphetamine, yes. Yes, you you can take enough of that and and and, and kill you know and, and die from it. So you know some of these drugs you have to be very very careful of, and, and some of these drugs have uh, a more rapid tolerance development too. So that you need more of the substance over time. Mm. Um, we don't see so much of that in the adolescent population, but we do see it in the adult population, where you know then we're talking about you know opiate overdoses, we're talking about meth overdoses, and and in the adult population, you know, there's, there has been some increases in, in, in those addictions, um, you know, that have been driven in part by the pandemic as well. Right. Well, and so I guess kind of where I was thinking is, you know, I think that some people that maybe are aware that, that again, to stick with marijuana, that it doesn't have this, you can't overdose on it. So then it's thereby, and I'm using air quotes, which no one except you and I can see, but safer, right? It's not as risky. But obviously, there are still, you know, a lot of a lot of problems that can come from, especially from early use or abuse of, of something like marijuana. So, if a if a parent was trying to talk to their kid about marijuana use, and that's a rebuttal, is that well, I can't overdose on it. You know, it's not like I'm doing meth or coke or, or something like that. How, what what kind of talking point could they use to to, to rebut back against that? Well, I would go back to number one, having a discussion with the child uh, about why they're using marijuana. You know, it, it's not going to do any good to yell and scream and argue with the kid. They're going to they're going to negatively react to that, and you're going to get a, a bad reaction. But I would I would say you know, have a discussion with the child so that perhaps you can get a better understanding of, of why they're using a substance. Are they using it just because of peer pressure? Are they going to use it because they want to look cool with their friends? Or are they using it because they're trying to manage some intolerable thought or feeling or memory like like anxiety? Um, now, you may or may not be able to to have 
a conversation that gives that information to you. Uh, and that's why ultimately, regardless of how that discussion goes, you want to proceed to the next step, which is to have the comprehensive assessments done that, um, that, that, that I talk about in my book. Your child's probably going to be opposed to it and resist you. But as a parent, you need to get those assessments done so that you know what's going on. Um, and then I guess another thing that I would try approaching is the neuroscience approach with the child, depending on, you know, what grade they're in and how old they are. And just, you know, not lecture them about neuroscience, but but come from a standpoint of let's let's look into this. Let's let's see how the brain works and let's see different areas of the brain and what they're responsible for. And then let's look at how marijuana uses the brain. When I was working with adolescents, I would show them a picture of the brain and the different areas of the brain and what they controlled. Like, you know, this one, uh, this one controls your memory. This one controls your speech. This one controls your coordination. And then I would show them another picture uh, that, that showed where marijuana attached itself to in the brain so that they immediately could see the connection between, okay, now I understand why maybe my short-term memory is not as good as it should have been or why my coordination sometimes can be off. They could actually see, you know, where marijuana was attaching itself to in the brain. And, and I think that type of a discussion in education may have an impact uh, much more so than a lecture on, well, you know, it's illegal. You shouldn't be doing it. And if you do, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, well, that's a, I mean, that's an interesting point that you bring up. And, and I realize, um, well, I'll just ask the question, I guess. Is there a, um, and I don't mean to, to, to imply that it's the parent's fault or, or something, you know, if a child chooses to, to engage in something like this, but is there a, a, a pattern of behavior within a family that you see that, that seems to lead to this outcome more often? I, I guess it's like, is there anything a parent can be doing to it outside of substance abuse in general, but just in their relationship with their child that, that will maybe either help prevent or at least help them better be able to deal with this if it comes up. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. And I think the best advice that I could give a parent, regardless of whether ch their child is, you know, 10, 11, 12 or 16, 17, 18, is, is to develop good communication skills. And, and by that, what I mean is we're usually pretty good at listening to people's words when we talk with them. Uh, sometimes we're not so good at listening to the feelings behind mm. the words. Um, and, and, and when you're talking to your child, um, if you can listen not just to their words, but to the feelings behind those words, you may lay the foundation for some really good communication and relationship building skills. Mm. You know, kids want to, kids want to have their parents trust mm. them. Um, when we ask teenagers, what is it that keeps your, you from talking to your parent about things that are bothering you? The answer that comes back more often than not is a fear of being judged. They fear being judged by their parents. So my recommendation to parents is uh, 
Work on developing those communication skills that enable you to listen not only to your child's words, but to pick up on the feelings behind those words. And that's a skill that every parent can learn. And it's a parent, a skill that every parent can practice. Um, but I think it'll make a big difference uh, in, in terms of the relationship that you have with your child. So if there is an issue that is bothering them, or there is something that you want to investigate with them, you do it from a perspective of trying to understand what's going on behind the words. How do you define abuse of a substance? And, and again, maybe this isn't as relevant to kids um, because, again, really pre-25, any use of a substance carries more risk. But, but what is abuse? What, how is that defined? Well, I point out in my book that uh, addiction is not a diagnosis. Your child uh, and no adult is going to get a diagnosis of being an addict. That's a very stigmatizing term. Mm. Um, If it's appropriate, um, your child and an adult would receive, after assessment, a diagnosis of what we now call substance abuse disorder. We used to call it abuse independency, but we got away from that. So that now the diagnosis is a substance abuse, a substance use disorder that can either be mild or moderate or severe. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is on the number of negative consequences that are associated with the substance use. In other words, the more that the use is impacting a person's life, making negative changes in their life, the more likely they are to end up with a substance abuse disorder that's mild or that's moderate or severe. So the bottom line is what we look at is how the use of a substance is affected that person and their life is is the number of consequences so severe that they end up with a substance use disorder that's severe or are there just a few negative consequences in which the diagnosis would be a substance use disorder that's mild so it runs on a continuum to mild to moderate to severe and it all comes down to how how is this substance interfering with the person's life mm, okay so um, I guess another, another question, obviously you have the book, but then along with the book, you have an accompanying workbook. Can you explain yes. how, how that relates? Yes. I, I wrote the parent workbook to help parents because so many of the parents that, that, that I saw and that I worked with had feelings of guilt, had feelings of anxiety, 
were really beating themselves up over how did I miss these warning signs? Well, they missed the warning signs because nobody ever told them what to look for. Um, you know, they're, they're, they were, they're good parents, but they just didn't know the warning signs that I have in my book. But nevertheless, they, they, would, they would feel guilty about missing them. Uh, they would question whether they were good parents. They would question, you know, how did all of this happen? So I wanted to write a, a, a very brief workbook that would help parents. It has a number of exercises in there that, that relate to their child's substance abuse, but it also has exercises in terms of, of, of them being able to write about their own feelings and their own emotions of dealing with this situation of having a child abusing a substance. There's a very brief exercise in terms of how, how they can manage their feelings of anxiety. There are, uh, there's an exercise on the communication skills that you, we were just talking about, listening to feelings. And, and some questions that, that, I, that I put in there on how they can phrase certain, certain issues with their child. So again, it's a very short uh, book. It's not weighted down with a lot of technicalities. There's some exercises where they can identify the substances that their children are using. They can write about how their child's substance use has affected their life and the life of their family. And all of this is to be able to allow them to have a resource so that they can work through these issues themselves. Ideally, if they could share the information with a friend or another relative or a spouse or a counselor, I think it could be very powerful to help them as they're going through this crisis. It's, it, the thing about substance abuse is it affects the individual, but it also affects the entire family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we, we will put the emphasis on the child and we will forget that the parent needs help, too. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just makes me think of um, just the, the, the notion that the caregiver also is exhausted through the process of giving that yeah. care kind of thing, right? So Right. Yeah. And, and they do become exhausted. That's a good term because you just become worn out by this because it's a daily struggle. It's a daily, daily issue that you're confronted with. And, and you do become exhausted by it. And then if you don't have anybody there for you, you have the feeling that you're going through this alone, which, which can be a very frightening and isolating type of, of situation to be in. Yeah, no, yeah, I think that's awesome that, that you've you've created that to go along with it. Um, so, I read a, and I'm just curious if this is if this is accurate, but I, I'd read a book called The Power of Habit, and in that book, it described um, it describes habits as the way the language it uses is kind of like forming a channel in our in our brain. If you imagine it's like a channel, you could pour water in, and then water runs down the channel. Well, you can remove the water from that channel so that it's no longer you know, in use, if you will, but the channel itself is, is still always there. And so what, what they use that a story to explain that is like, there's a, a guy they talk about who is an alcoholic and then stopped and didn't use alcohol for 30 years. And then his daughter gets married and he's, you know, in his sixties at this point, and he decides to celebrate at the wedding and have a drink. And he does. And within, I think a year or two, he, he passes away from complications with alcoholism because it just, right back in as if the 30 years hadn't lapsed is is that a, a really extreme story or is that actually valid that that these habits and these these addictions do form a channel that's there permanently i think i think these substances do 
make impressions on the brain. They sort of rewire the circuitry in the brain. Mm. Um, and, and as I was saying earlier, once a person stops using a substance, the brain has a remarkable capacity to heal itself. The question always becomes, well, will the brain get back to where it was before the drugs were introduced? Mm. And that, that depends on, you know, the drugs that was being used. Some, some drugs uh, can do more damage to the brain than other drugs. Uh, it has to do with the frequency of use. It's much more difficult to treat somebody who has been using cocaine for five or 10 or 15 years than somebody who's been using for one or two years. And it has a lot to do with the age at which a person starts using a substance. So there's a lot of variables in there. Uh, but the fact that a person has been abusing a substance or, 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 or more likely they have become dependent on a substance and then they go into abstinence. Are they vulnerable to a relapse? Absolutely, they're vulnerable to a relapse. Even years down the road, a person can can relapse. And once that relapse process begins and that brain sort of picks up on the pleasure, then it, you know, unless there's an intervention right away, uh, it runs the risk of, of doing exactly what your example was. You're off to the races, so to speak. And before they know it, and some Sometimes very quickly, a person can be back into that addictive cycle. Mm. So, um, you know, obviously you worked as a counselor for a long time and, and then have retired from that and, and then written this book. But do you still work with families or individuals in any capacity um, or is it primarily the book is how you reach people at this point? Yeah, it's it's primarily reaching out through the book. Uh, you know, uh, when I left Menninger, uh, I retired. Uh, so I wanted to spend my time developing this resource. So a lot of my the time that I've been doing now has been reaching out to people like yourself uh, that are more than willing to help me uh, reach out to parents and families about this issue. Um, you know, because um, this is this is really a, a process where I need to rely on people like yourself who have an audience out there uh, that are willing to help me reach out to parents and families to let them know about this resource. Um, I don't have a, a million dollar publicity budget or a publicist that, that perhaps other famous people have. Uh, but, uh, you know, through the kindness of people like yourself, I'm hoping that we'll be able to reach out in, in, to families and, and help them know about this resource. Awesome. Um, well, I, I will say, as I said before we started recording, the, 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 the pleasure is mine. Um, the opportunity to, to share work like this with, with the world is, is just awesome because um, I've, known, I've known people that where kids in the family had issues. And, and then I've also, you know, known adults. I mean, my, my own father passed away when I was 20 from alcoholism. So um, I've had a very personal relationship with addiction and, um, yeah, it, it literally destroys, <laughs> destroys lives and families. So anything to help prevent that is, 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 is incredible. Um, I guess one other thing that I always am curious about is there, and it doesn't have to be the number one or anything like that, but is there a, a significant or a common misconception about adolescent substance abuse that, that you feel people have something that you would like to address? I, I think the, the misconception is that um, kids are getting into substances because they think it's cool and they want to do it. And, and, and certainly that is the case with some kids. But I think the factor that's missing 
um, is that in a lot of cases, there is an underlying psychological reason why a child is using a substance. It's not always to fit in with their peers. It is sometimes. It's not always to be cool, although it is sometimes. But there's an awful lot of kids out there that are suffering with an underlying issue, and they have somehow come across a substance. Maybe a friend recommended it. Maybe another kid who was going through the same thing said, hey, try this. And and they've tried it, like marijuana for anxiety, and they felt the immediate relief. And once they feel the immediate relief, um, you know, they're, they're going to continue to, to turn to it. So I think the perception out there is that every kid who's using marijuana is using it because of, of a peer influence. That may be the case in a lot of, lot of times, but there's an awful lot of kids out there that are, that are trying to deal with these underlying issues and they've just come across a substance which gives them the relief that they're looking for. And, and in many cases, that underlying issue gets missed and doesn't get di- diagnosed and then doesn't get treated. The, the, the focus, the attention is on the substance. Even in the family, the focus is on the substance. Um, and, and the underlying issue is, is completely missed. It's so interesting, you know, to, to hear you say that just because it's it, it, to me, it speaks to um, really a larger point in in humans, which is that and I, I don't know what word to use. Misbehave isn't really <laughs> the appropriate word, I don't think. But when people act out in ways that are harmful to themselves or others, it's easy to to be like, oh, they're just a punk kid or if it's an adult, oh, he's just a jerk or whatever. But to your point, more often than not, it's it's actually usually in response to some trauma or whatever significant problem that they're struggling with. Right. It's it's I mean, a cry for help maybe isn't even the right phrase, but it's like they're trying to fix something. They're not trying to just watch the world burn kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, that is the case in, in, in a lot of adolescents. Um, you know, some of them are dealing with anxiety, some with depression, some with trauma, some with an eating disorder. Uh, it could be any number of underlying issues. And, and the same is true for many adults, too. Um, you know, none of us like to have what I call intolerable thoughts, feelings or memories. Um, and kids are no different than adults. When we have those intolerable, intense feelings, we don't like to have them around and we're going to find a way to get rid of them. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, some adults and some children have found the answer in a substance. And once they latch onto it and they find out it gives them the relief that they want, they're, they're, then they're very vulnerable to continuing to use it. And then over time, a to- what we call a tolerance develops and they end up using more and more of the substance. The sad part is that in many cases, the underlying issue is never diagnosed. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really powerful to hear you talk about it. And I mean, it ties back to the very, that's what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation is the underlying mental health issues leading to that. So I think it's really, really powerful to hear you reiterate that point. Um, well, Richard, and I don't, and I don't mean to, 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 to say to parents that every child has that underlying issue. There will be some kids who use the drug just because they want to be cool or, or because of peer pressure uh, or because, you know, um, for any number of reasons. And there is no underlying psychological issue. Well, again, that's great. But as a parent, you need to get a comprehensive assessment to rule it out. 
or to rule it in uh, and not run the risk that, that, you, that you're missing something and not just focus on the substance abuse, but see what other issues that, that may or may not be there, then you've got a complete picture. Yeah, well, and I think, and to your point, certainly it's not, you know, a blanket statement that, that this is the situation every time. But I think by at least a person understanding that, that oftentimes or, or sometimes it can be an underlying yeah. issue that's causing it, it just leads a person to maybe deal with it with a little more empathy, at least initially, which might, you know, to our conversation earlier, have a better outcome in trying to talk to the, the child or adolescent about it because you're coming out of from a place of concern, not a place of why have you betrayed this rule or why are you know what I mean? You're doing something wrong. No, that's a good point, because I think if your child does have that underlying issue uh, that you may never have been aware of as a parent, or maybe you were aware of it, you just didn't think it was that severe, uh, and discovering that that's the reason your child is using marijuana puts a completely different perspective on it. And you probably, as a parent, will approach the substance use with a little bit different point of view than you would otherwise. Right, right. Well, Richard, it's been a, an absolute pleasure uh, talking with you this evening. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would, would like to, to, to get to? No, I think we've covered the entire range of, of, of what I hope, uh, you know, people are interested in and people want to know about. Um, I would encourage everyone who is listening to us to, um, to obtain you know, the book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Uh, it's available in Kindle version and it's available in paperback. Some people like to have a paperback to, so that they can, you know, make notes and write and highlight and keep it on the bookshelf. And I think that's great. Uh, but for those who like to read on a Kindle, there's a version there. And the uh, and the workbook is uh, available in paperback. So I would encourage people to, to, to get a copy, uh, to learn it, uh, learn the information, and hopefully feel a little bit better uh, prepared and uh, a little bit more knowledgeable about this issue um, as they go down the road. Yeah. Well, and I think it, I do want to, to highlight that, it, you know, it's available on the Kindle. If I'm not mistaken, it's just 99 cents to purchase it on the Kindle. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So it's very affordable. And beyond that, if anyone is a subscriber to Kindle Unlimited, it's actually included for free with the Kindle Unlimited subscription. Right. Yes, so, it is. And I intentionally priced it so that it would be a, a, affordable for pretty much every parent who has a Kindle. 99 cents, or like you said, if it's unlimited, it's free. Uh, you know, that's that's a very small investment for the information that you're going to get. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then that's why I wanted to highlight it so people understand how accessible this is. Um, well, again, the book is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Um, I'll have links to the Amazon page where people can pick it up. But then the book also has a website, helptheaddictedchild.com. So I'll make sure to have a link to that and people there can get a, a bit more insight and information um, on the book as well. Um, well, Richard, again, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you uh, taking time to talk to me and also for your contributions to the discussion. I think uh, they were not only insightful, but hopefully helped us to have a better discussion. So thank you for your observations as well. with a quivering lip and scared of the mirror on the wall. A 
crash and crash and being overproud Afraid and running quickly in place Violent hands are your end and down Damn my stubborn embrace How dare you knock around How can you sell your people out Why are you cold and trill Or do you sell the poor line kill Is this spark that turns to a flame that burns is there a stream that's bound to a flood that drowns the good inside of you? You can't shoot your way out of this one. You can't bury this in the night. You can't beat the hell out of this one. Alright folks, well that's going to do it for the show today. Thank you so much again to Richard Capriola for stopping by. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Of course, again, thank you to Misha Zarens for the music. And last but not least, thank you listener. I also want to encourage you to check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is co-hosted by me and Brett Lindley. Pick Up Your Sticks is a podcast about video games where we talk about why gaming matters. You can find Pick Up Your Sticks on any podcast platform. Again, thanks so much for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up. Stay up.